Hey everybody, it is November 5th, 2016. You're listening to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the academy. So uh, my name is Derek Price. Today I'm joined by uh, Kyle Romero. Hi there, I'm Kyle. That's Kyle. Um, on And to my left, audioly, not necessarily the case, <laughs> is Terrell Taylor. Say hi, Terrell. Hey, this is Terrell. No, he said say hi, not hey. Yeah, that was, uh, we're going to have to do that again. Ouch! <laughs> um, so, so what is this podcast about? Um, we wanted to, we've created this podcast as a sort of space where um, scholars here at Vanderbilt University, so we're all associated with Vanderbilt University, and um, we, we sort of have these great conversations about texts, about film in our classes, in our respective disciplines. We all sort of come from different disciplines, and we'll get to that in a sec. But we wanted to uh, create a space where we could talk about games in that sort of critical and sort of deep diving way that we do in seminars and sort of share that with you guys. So um, the general idea behind this podcast is that each episode will have a theme. Uh, this one, this episode's theme happens to be narrative and gameplay. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a sec. But um, there'll be a theme or sort of topic or guiding principle, and then we will choose a game or two at the most probably, and then also a text or two, and we'll sort of bring these objects together in sort of discussion, and sort of find the tensions and the agreements between them, and um, it's always going to be sort of tied to our theme for the day, but the conversations will sort of flow in the way that you might expect in a sort of seminar, if any of you have already uh, been in a sort of discussion-based class at a, at a, at a school. Um, so I thought it'd be good for us to sort of go around real quick and introduce ourselves. So I've been doing a lot of talking. Terrell, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us, tell us, what do you, why do you like gaming? <laughs> what are you into? What am I into? Well, I am a second year English PhD student here at Vanderbilt. My interests are primarily the 20th century um, African American literature and really the Americas in a sort of general context. A little bit of 19th, a little bit of 21st there too really interested in cultural studies, and I am particularly interested in video games as a way to explore different experiences, the way that games can kind of put you in the sort of shoes of somebody else, not just sort of give you an insight to their thinking or thoughts or what it is that they see or feel on a day-to-day basis, but what it is to actually make choices in somebody else's shoes. And I think that that happens in a variety of different games. That happens in your AAA games, like, you know, when you're playing Batman and the recent sort of Arkham series, you know, when you're choosing between Catwoman and Batman. Those are two different modes and fields of games, but even something like, you know, say, Gone Home, or even, you know, less the more indie cycles. There's differences in there, too. So that's kind of my interest and what I hope to explore in my scholarship and my work moving forward. Cool, cool. How about you, Kyle? Well, um, I'm Kyle. And I'm in the uh, history department here at Vanderbilt. I'm a third year. Uh, I recently defended my dissertation prospectus. So Woo! things hyped. are great for hyped. me personally. Yeah. Get hyped. Uh, um, yeah. And I, I'm probably what you would call a uh, first time talker about video games, <laughs> long time player of video games. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I have been a gamer since I was a small child. As a out of shape white guy, it was kind of <laughs> meant for me, you know, um, who didn't like going outside. So this was kind of really great for me growing up, video games, but I'd never really thought critically about them until uh, this year. And so uh, in particular, I'm interested in uh, historical video games and how video games use history in certain ways, not the kind of very basic, like, oh, is Assassin's Creed right? Like, obviously, it's, it's not <laughs> <Yeah>. right. right? <laughs> but more important, like, what, what can Assassin's Creed teach you about video games? Also, what is Assassin's Creed, like, 
say about history, right? Like, what does it say about how history happens? Is it the action of single people? Is it the actions of one crazy assassin, right? Um, yeah, so thinking more seriously about those issues past the kind of very facile, like, is it right or not, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Very quickly, and we can talk about this later, <laughs> your thoughts on Battlefield 1. Uh, I haven't Ooh. played it yet, but okay. I'm pretty excited. I'm actually a huge fan, terrible choice of words, of World <laughs> War One. <I. laughs> <laughs> I, I teach I teach in U.S. history, and I tell my students, I'm like, this is a really awesome time in history. And I mean awesome, like, the literal use of the word awesome, yeah. like awe-inspiring, right. as opposed to, like, cool, because... 68 million dead is Mass not cool, death. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm really fascinated by World War I, and, and a yeah. lot of my personal history scholarship focuses on kind of how World War I has been obfuscated by uh, the presence of World War II in yeah. kind of American mm-hmm. memory. And there's, so, there's not such a great narrative about how the Allies, a.k.a. America, came in and saved that one. So it's like in our... <laughs> yeah, in it's our, like kind of still weirdly there, even yeah, though absolutely. like we did very little yeah, in the context of the war. only partook for a small piece of time. Yeah, but like yeah, the, the, months, the yeah. way better narrative, especially in games, is the World War II narrative. It's yeah. very easy to pick out the bad guy there. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, we oh, have yeah. Nazis, World right? World War One, not quite so uh, soon. We've been told repeatedly that it's Nazis <laughs> are the the bad guy. Yeah, so I'm very fascinated to play it actually. Um, yeah, and I'm hoping it'll maybe kind of reinforce the importance of World War One. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I don't know. So, so the one thing I've 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 heard other people talking about this game. I've read a little bit about it. Is that uh, there's sort of a, a tutorial beginning of the game. Oh my goodness! Where, yes. Yeah, where you sort of play as a soldier, and you then you play die as the Harlem. Okay, so that okay, awesome. yes. so that's more specific than I. They knew. are the Harlem Hellfighters. Yes, yeah. one and, of the most respected units of World War One. Yeah. And you, um, they tell you up front that there's no, there's no happy story here. Yeah, it's very. As in, you die. It's not. Oh, that's not quite how it happened. Let's you know respawn you. This isn't any other. Like no, you die, and then we show. Oh, you lived from this point to this point, and on to the next character, and they're wow. gonna die too. Yeah, yeah. It's those. It's like there's wow. like a dog tag, or you see like. Like the dates and the name of someone, I mm-hmm. think it's an actual person. Like they, they have actual so. names. Wow. Yeah, believe so. I have to say, like you know, I feel weird about buying collector's editions of games. Given that <laughs> some, some games have kind of been like, wow, I really want this collector's edition, but then the game turned out not to be that great. Yeah, I'm really regretting not having the Harlem Hellfighter. That is pretty oh statue. man, that I, I do yeah. own the Destiny collector's edition, so I am very <laughs> yeah. aware of how terrible it can be to own a collector's <laughs> edition of what turned out to be a pretty. Awful game. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> oh. Ooh, hot takes. We're starting this at a really rigid period. So anyway, Bioshock. Yeah. Let's let's, let's no. That was good. Let's. Um. I will. I will quickly say my piece about me. Um. So my name's. I'm Derek Price. I'm. Uh, I'm a third year at the German department here at Vanderbilt. Um. My interest in games sort of developed over the last year. Kyle said he's a longtime player, first time talker about or critic of. I think that counts for most of us here. Yes. I, I think that, and that's one important thing to mention up at the top of this whole thing is that like this is as much a learning experience for yeah. the three of us. We're not mm-hmm. game theorists. We are yeah. not like people who already know this stuff. We are voices crying in the wilderness. We are. And and come on, listen to us and affirm us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, you know, we are we are learning as much, you know, when we read these articles, it's the first time we've read them. And so we're, you know, the part of the part of the thing I was hoping to accomplish with this with this podcast is to show that process of learning and that process of dialogue that I think is so like is such an essential part of of figuring out how to just talk about anything really yep. not mm-hmm. let alone mm-hmm. uh, specifically games but of course uh, almost anything so my uh, my interest in games sort of developed uh, a little bit last year and I'm you know I'm still I'm, I'm planning on a dissertation that's going to examine 
hopefully some some of the German game scene, which is mm. like a thing that that is a very small thing uh, in in the American popular consciousness. Mm-hmm. Game, like um, video games or board vi- games? Video too, games okay. specifically. Yeah. Although, actually, I mean, since the board game culture is so strong, like that that <laughs> yeah, would that's, almost that's I find that's almost really maybe like a yeah. like a. That might be a good angle to go. A lot with of it. people have mentioned that it's if you're interested in thinking about games in any capacity, Gaming, studying yeah. board games, board games, yeah, having a more kind of integrated like, yeah. board game culture, video yeah. game culture, because they're not separate. I mean, I'm sure no, we all not. enjoy board games as much. As... And it's it's sort of that like you know where's the beginning of the camera or film? Is it the exactly. daguerreotype? Yeah. Is it the camera obscura? So like mm. the idea that the vi- that games only start happening like the video games are radically distinct from board games. Yeah. Like they both have these discrete elements and they have this sort of, you know, uh, the ways in which games develop, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The w- uh, It's like when a game... Uh, Meritology. Um, no. Oh, shoot. Ludology. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring it back. <laughs> Let's just cut that one off. Yeah. Um, the, the, the point being that... Um, I'm interested in pursuing a dissertation that focuses on how how video games have developed in Germany and sort of how that might how the how the conversation around video games and also games themselves have developed in Germany and how that might be different from the American experience of games mm. or the Japanese or the French sort of cultures. Mm. You know, I I want to stay away from the questions. I've recently realized how important this is. Like, what is German about this game? That becomes uh, a yeah, really don't, don't quickly that. uncomfortable question. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, the fact that these that there's a discourse about games that, yeah. that happens differently there than it does mm-hmm. in the U.S. And the most interesting thing, too, would be to, to, to trace the actual people. Like, are these people going to Japan yeah. and saying, like, this isn't what we do? And, like, what, what are they saying it is that they do, right? Yeah, definitely. I think that's more kind of transnational, the exactly. kind of history I do, uh, than comparative, right? Yeah. It's a more fruitful. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think comparative gaming is actually something I'm slightly interested in. So, yeah. I mean, you know, oh, this... no, I think it's definitely important, but, like, we should right. be really wary of, like, how the culture shapes the comparison. So don't be like, it's so Japanese, you know, it's all yes. representing Japan. Right, right, right. People well, made this. You know, <laughs> and one of the things I'm also interested in, like I said, I'm interested in the Americas writ large. I'm interested yeah. in sort of American studies, and, you know, sure. we are the number one producer of first-person shooters. There, what yeah, does yeah. that say about us? Right? <laughs> I think so right. Not, we all know what it says. <laughs> not so much what America has to say about everybody else, but you know, let's let's talk about America. We like killing bit. Nazis. I don't, are you against killing Nazis? <laughs> yeah, Trump? man. I mean, jeez. <laughs> eh, Didn't you know this is the nah. Nazi Killcast? Um, <laughs> welcome to the Nazi Killcast. We're going to rebrand every episode. Um, just to tie it all together there. I'm uh, The other thing, besides sort of that German context, I'm also really interested, and I think we all are in this, is the moments when, not only when we can do criticism on games as an object, but when the game itself seems to be carrying out a yes. criticism of something, when, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. when it's performing a, some sort of critique. Mm-hmm. And I think that that transitions us nicely Segway. into talking about uh, our object for today and our, yeah. and our, our sort of our theme. So the, uh, I mentioned this earlier, the, the theme is narrative and gameplay. Um, and so today we've chosen three different objects that we're going to be focusing on. The first is, uh, actually it's a blog post by uh, a guy named Clint Hawking from 2007. Working at LucasArts at the time. I he believe, was working right? at LucasArts, yeah, excellent. Game developer. Yeah, so that the name of that article is called Ludo Narrative Dissonance in Bioshock. Uh, <clears throat> and that obviously leads us to our game that we're going to be talking about, which is Bioshock, the game that came out in 2007 um, by 2K uh, Boston. And it was, yeah, released in 2007. Um, so 2K Boston actually later became Irrational Games. Uh, and they also recently disbanded maybe two, three years ago, mm-hmm. um, which is which kind of blew my mind. It's like the people that made the Bioshock thing are like gone. 
Right. It's a different sort of model of industry working. But so those are those are two of the objects. And then our third object is actually a video by a channel called Errant Signal. Um, the guy, apparently the guy who's behind this is named Christopher Franklin. Mm-hmm. That's correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the video is called The Debate That Never Took Place. And you can find all these links on our website. And in the show notes. And in exactly. the show notes, yeah. yeah I'm definitely going to list those in the show notes. Or just Google them. Yeah. But this is a full multimedia experience. It we, is. We have video. We have blog. Yeah. This is, yeah, we're in it, Do guys. print out one of these texts, put the video up next to you, and have the game on your computer and just and do them all at once. Experience it. I mean, that's, that's how I did it, right? That's how you guys <laughs> yeah, did it? Yeah, I watched yeah. the video 97 times so I can play the whole game. <laughs> <laughs> just dove into a ludonarrative dissonance cocoon. Yeah, exactly. Um, all so, right. So that's the things that are going to be framing our conversation. One last thing before we get into the nitty-gritty, spoiler alert. So um, this is going to be a a constant thing for us. Like, in order to have the kinds of discussions that we want to have, we've all sort of collectively decided that we just need to be able to talk about everything in the game, no matter how much of a spoiler it is. And I think it's particularly relevant for this game because Bioshock is so... There's a moment in Bioshock. Yeah. It has one of the most talked about reveals in gaming Absolutely. history, as I am aware of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we will be talking about that very soon. Um, so if you've not played Bioshock and you were thinking, oh, maybe I'll get around to it one day, I can't believe I'm saying this, but maybe turn the podcast off now. <laughs> yes. Uh, because it will it will actually spoil that for you. Now is the best time to do it. They just re-released editions Indeed, for remastered. the PS4 yeah. and the Xbox One. And I think, it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, it was on sale on Steam, so you might have missed yeah, that for Halloween. you might have missed the Halloween but sale. if you already have it, I think, on Steam, they may upgrade it for you, you know, some this is that and the other. But yeah. definitely check this game out. Yeah. It's worth your time. Also, it really the Steam is. Winter Sales coming up in about a month. You can this probably is true. I picked up Bioshock Remastered for five dollars. So that is beautiful. Yeah, you'll probably get it around there. The sales are real, and you can get them too. Yeah. Um, so that's just a little a little way thing in the way of spoilers. Um, and hey, I w- I'll make this case real quick. I think that there's there's other ways to enjoy these media outside of the spoilers context. Yeah. I think that the 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 focus on spoilers. It can be very important. It is for this game, mm-hmm. but yeah. there are so many different ways of engaging with with film, with texts, with yeah. uh, with games that are not so focused around the the plot. The the I didn't know it was going to happen, and then something I didn't know happened. So, you know, hopefully we can convince you that there are uh, that there are other ways to enjoy these kinds of things. As well. Not to mention that uh, the game came out in two thousand and seven. So, <laughs> the, <laughs> you it's have to almost ten years yeah. old. Yeah. Right? That was the Bush presidency. We can we can move out of oh this my now. God. Oh. oh my god! Wow! It, See? Oh no, Kyle! Really? What have you done? What? It's it's time to talk about contemporary Is events. <laughs> <laughs> now we're we're recording on November fifth, and we were talking about how we should have like a little little thing about the election. It's happening in three days. And, and I think we're all just ready for it to be done. So, yeah, yeah I think in all respects, I'm pretty sure everyone is ready for yeah. it to be done, right? I don't, I so. don't, yeah. Can't they just move it up a little sooner? I mean, that actually, that's... Change it Also, Sunday. happy Guy Fawkes Day. We, we oh, yeah, that. it is November. Yeah, 5th of November. All right. Kyle, Terrell, Derek. Let's talk about, let's talk about Hawking's piece. Let's start with the blog, the blog post. Um, this, so we mentioned this before. It's a blog post. It was written in 2007. Um... Who is Hawking? Terrell, who's Hawking? Who is this guy? So I think we mentioned earlier, I forget what his original studio that he was working for. It was LucasArts. Right? LucasArts, Lucas right? Yes. Um, he spent some time, I know, I think, 
writing for Rock Paper Shotgun. Oh, cool. At a certain point in time. And I want to say now he is with Ubisoft. I'm pretty sure that's what I read, yeah. Right. Okay. So that's kind of um, a little background on him. He's definitely a developer. He's definitely um, more thinking on the professional side of what it is to make games. But even if you stop and think for a second about you know just the, the changes or the movement of something like Ubisoft over the past few years, it's clear that there's there's a a sense that he's definitely on the triple A side of the games industry, but he also wants to kind of cash in on games doing a certain type of aesthetic or artistic work. I mean, yeah. thinking about what's the things that are going on behind the scenes of Far Cry 3 and sort of what it says about, you know, the shooter, how it kind of lampoons itself at the same time as it sort of plays itself out. Um, and so it's, it's very clear with the piece that we've got here that he's trying to think about uh, this emerging thing called games criticism. Yeah. And we should maybe talk a little bit about it. Yeah, and to know that this piece did come out in 2007. Yeah, yeah, 2007. Well. So this was at a yes. time when, you know, he, he's kind of presenting the field of games criticism as, like, relatively new, right? That mm -hmm. he says, you know, if you want a review of Bioshock, go to any of these, you know, 10 sites that he lists. But what I'm trying to do is a criticism. So talk about what is the philosophy of Bioshock? What is it trying to tell me, and this main issue, of course, uh, of ludonarrative dissonance. Yeah. So I think we should probably define that. Definitely. Because I, I had to Google it no. before this podcast. And so. if you've heard us say it a few times now, and you have, and you're thinking, I, if I swear to God, if they say it again and they don't tell me what it means, you would be totally fair in thinking that. So um, this is, a, this is a, a term that, as far as I can tell, Hawking coined. Mm -hmm. um, and Pretty it comes, everyone says that. Yeah, it, mm -hmm. it comes from, so there's two parts to the word. There's the ludo, which comes from... Luden? Is that I the think correct Latin word? Ludus, Lud I think, is Ludus. the Latin for, of game. Of game, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's the that's part of that word. And the narrative, of course, that's pretty obvious. The story, plot, the interplay between the two. Um, what Hawking is sort of focusing in, here, fo focusing in on here is a sort of, what he sees as a dissonance, a sort of a tension between the story that, that Bioshock wants to tell the on narrative. the one side. Exactly, the narrative. And this, the gameplay, that you, the actions you can take in the world, the ways in which you interact with the game, um, how you progress through it, and all those kinds of things. So I think that's sort of what he wants to highlight with this term, ludonarrative dissonance. Um, I think, you know, Kyle, I know Kyle and Terrell, you both have thoughts about this. He's, he's talking, so in terms of games criticism, he has a very specific idea of what games criticism is. Do you, what do you guys feel like he's... You want to sum that up. Like, Kyle, what do you think the... What is he saying about games criticism here? Yeah, so it seems he's kind of writing to a very particular audience and that he, he thinks the... This piece is really meant for games developers to look at, right? And which makes sense. He is a games developer. But he's saying that what you really want in your piece is a consistency between your gameplay and your narrative. Um, and you do not find that in Bioshock. And so I don't know if we want to get into the specifics of the article... Um, we, now about we should in a sec, but I, I, there's, I want to read this quote, actually. It's Great. this quote at the... Uh, Terrell, why don't you read this quote at the top here, this, like, <clears throat> that roughly speaking thing. Sure, sure. So this is a quote from uh, Clint Hawking in October 7th, 2007. Bingo. Quote, Roughly speaking, we could say games criticism is for game developers and professionals who want to think about the nature of games and what they mean. Game reviews are for the public for people who play games, and they are intended to help those people make decisions about which games they should buy. Both are valuable and important contributions, but sadly, we only seem to have one. Yeah, 
And I think this is getting at what Kyle was talking about with this this particularity of the moment in which uh, in which Hawking is writing is that um, criticism is still kind of a fledgling thing. Now, like that doesn't mean it wasn't happening. Like there's in the other in another article we were thinking about reading for today. There's a you know around ninety seven. I mean there's there's all these hyper text books being written in the nineties, and they're sort of coming out of this postmodernism literary theory angle towards uh, looking at games to a certain extent. Um, but games criticism, things that are taking games as an object and sort of really like thinking about how they how they work, but also what they mean. I think that's a really important thing that Hawking defines here mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is is a thing that's newly happening. The, the thing that really that got me and sort of is the reason why I think this is so, it stands out to us now, I think, is that for him, for Hawking, games criticism is for game developers. Yeah. It's to make for, better games. Yes. Yeah. It's about the, and, and, and what games criticism is for him is it's talking about the nature of games and what they mean. And I would love to open this point up quickly for a little, little discussion is like, what is games criticism for? Who is it for? And what is it aiming at doing? I think uh, it it is kind of along the lines of other media criticism, right? And that, you know, I think Hawking is kind of wary of the, like, are video games art debate? Yeah. And I'm also wary of that. I think it's, uh, frankly, a kind of dumb debate. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so if we can start on the point that, like, Lots of things are art, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. are therefore worthy of analysis. Or like lots yes. of things have meaning, right? Yeah. Lots mm-hmm. of things have mm-hmm. like large cultural, broad social meaning. And, and that's maybe mm-hmm. a more interesting way to frame it. Mm-hmm. And if we really get into like the nuts and bolts of this, like you're playing Bioshock for what, 25 to 30 hours if you're good or bad? I don't know. That's how long I took. I don't know what that means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to have people listening like, it took me eight hours. What's wrong with this guy? Yeah. Uh, 25, 30 hours, that's a big time investment, right? And you mm-hmm. are doing a lot mm-hmm. of you're having a lot of space in the game. Mm-hmm. And so figuring out what that game means and what it's kind of doing to you, the gamer, as it works, should be the kind of purview of a wide variety of people, right. in my opinion, right. uh, especially, as our podcast title would tell you, scholars. Yeah, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Definitely, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's uh, that's something we're definitely concerned with. But, like, um, this sort of... This division along lines... I think he's taking up what is actually happening. Like, he sees that reviews really are for the public. And he's sort of making a normative claim based on mm-hmm. this sort of factual claim. Mm-hmm. It's like, it is the case. Like, and and it's, it's silly because, like, right in the beginning of this paragraph, he's saying, oh, I wish there was more criticism. There's only reviews. But then he sort of takes on this division of, like, reviews are for the public. Yeah. And they're basically purchasing guides. And the implication that I'm uncomfortable with here is that the public isn't interested in uh, what games mean or what are the nature of games or that like only the only thing the public cares about in terms of games is is it worth my money yeah. is it going to give me the uh, the is it going to be worth my $60 and my 40 hours and um it almost by assuming this i feel like it undermines a little bit of the criticism work that he wants to do because if if this is the case then None of the public is really interested in this this work that he's doing, and criticism can never really be the thing he wants it to be. And why would he publish it on his blog then? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I I almost want to just come out the gate, you know, guns blazing here. Yeah. Because the more I sit and think about it, I almost think that the distinction he's making does exist, but it is certainly not total. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking back to one of my he was one of my favorite game reviewers for a while, and um, he was just, he kind of 
generally shifted to games criticism as well, Adam Sessler. And at a certain point in time when he was still with X-Play, he wrote a review of Sly Cooper mm-hmm. at a certain point in time. And I remember in his review, one of the things he took up, which is something that a lot of people had kind of said colloquially about the game, which is that it's really easy. You can sit down and beat it. There's no, you're not going to be you know, forced to kind of get good, if you will. Yeah. Um, but he stopped. <laughs> <laughs> that got me. That was, that was funny. But you know, one of the things he stopped and said about this, which was actually really interesting, is that that's a good thing. You know, you are not in a constant fight with the developer here, right? Yeah. You're going to be able to sort of develop the sort of feel for how to use the character, how to move, do the platforming, and that's going to be good, right? That's a different way to think about approaching this game. Like, if you're looking for something that's going to be punishing, yeah, right. Not the place to go. Sure, but there are other things, and insofar like, as he's like re- Dark Souls, <laughs> yeah, right. There's plenty of options. Right, but insofar as the, you know different games and the types of experiences that games can offer, I feel like reviews can do that. Yeah, I also think that criticism, like say you know some of the things that Errant Signal does in other videos on his channel, like yes, he's doing a criticism of say The Last of Us or Spec Ops the Line. But he's also sort of giving you, hey, this is what it kind of means to play those things. This is what we should start to look for and think about our games, right? You know, when you purchase something, what exactly is it that you're purchasing? Yeah. What should you look for in your gameplay? Yeah. And I don't know. I think that there's there's definitely a difference between the two. Uh, I mean, just thinking about how IGN, if you look at some of their older reviews at a certain point in time, they have this really weird category of things where, you know, graphics, yeah. audio. Right. This is that and the other. Almost like it's a car. Yeah, right, yeah, like sort of... what are the features? Can I like I could <laughs> not I could a full experience. I could yeah. take I could take like a review of this <sighs> game and compare it directly with another game because the the the, the right. genre of writing that is developed is this sort of like uh, you know the price point is the you right. know like this is your hundred hour investment and for that yeah. you'll get you know these following features. Right. Whereas you wouldn't do that with a movie, you wouldn't be like right. Lord of the Rings has like a nine on cinematography but right. an eight on this compared yeah. to. I don't know, some other movie, Star Wars, which has a seven yeah. on this and an eight on this, so we're going to compare them. No, they're two different experiences. Yeah, right, right. I mean, you know, I just remember finishing Bioshock way back when, and then I was like, well, what games are similar to this? And then I sort of tried to look it up, and people said Mass Effect, and I was like, okay. And like, yeah, they're both RPGs, they're both shooters, but radically different experiences. Very different, yeah. So, both great games. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I think that's the first part of Hawking, that he kind of lays out this example of what games criticism could be, and I think we have our problems with that, but the second half, the actual criticism, is is what I find really fascinating about Bioshock. So I don't know if we want to just give a brief summary of Bioshock I think that might be helpful at this point, actually. So I have, I wrote up a little... uh, Yeah, Kyle, I saw that. That (laughs) looks good. Please go right ahead. um, (laughs) An idea of the game. Kyle's got a whole thing. In its shortest version possible. So you are Jack in Bioshock. You're a man named Jack. That's pretty much all you know about yourself, and you are mostly represented by disembodied hands that are not attached to anything. On, on, in the frame, yeah. Yes, and so uh, you you are on a plane, the plane crashes, you enter the city of Rapture, which is an underwater Art Deco Randian utopia, right? Yeah. Um, which we'll get into all We'll that. get to that, yeah. Uh, you are immediately greeted uh, by a, a voxophone, that's, that's what they're called in Bioshock Infinite. What are they called in regular Bioshock? The, oh, the audio tapes? The recording audio tapes? Yeah, so there's yeah. audio logs, and that's how a lot of the narrative is, de- is delivered. I, I just finished Bioshock Infinite, so I hope I'm not <laughs> <laughs> carrying over too much, um, which that was also a real big, fairly insane game to play yeah, <laughs> with a crazy twist at the end. We and, would um, need three hours to chew through that. 
Yeah, and yeah. so the you're in this city. You're greeted by a uh, audio tape, a radio connection of a guy named Atlas, who's trying mm-hmm. to help you take down the evil Andrew Ryan, yeah. um, who is basically Big Brother. Right? He's the he's the founder <laughs> of of Rapture. Uh, of Rapture. And sort of, and also like it's it's his it's his founda- it's his uh, it's a thing he built, but it's also based on this very particular ideology that he has, um, which is let's let's get into it. Um, yeah. So uh, so those are the basics. Yeah, the those game. are the basics. And those are sure. all the kind of basic things. The big reveal is Can we talk about it. Well, I mean, let's get there. Let's okay. w- let's warm up to it. So like uh, in terms of like game genre, this game is mostly a first person shooter. Yep. Um, so you you are it's entirely a first person shooter. It was marketed as an FPS RPG. Yeah, so which is fascinating. Right, so we've got the that first person shooter elements is the main way you interact, and then also like this role playing game um, mechanics of like upgrading your your weapons and right. having a, a good deal of customizability. Yeah, it's it's probably worth mentioning that this is you know the Shock series of sorts. Yeah, and good, that good. there was System Shock and then System, System Shock, Shock Two. Yeah, and you know really in Aaron Singel make this makes this argument elsewhere. I feel like I'm just a big plug for him at this point. <laughs> um, but the shift happens over time where the first System Shock was way more RPG-focused. Sure. The System Shock 2 kind of made the, the shooting feel a little bit better. And so, you know, and I remember having friends who were really into shooters at the time talk about this. It's like the shooting in Bioshock, in the original especially, not particularly as crisp, especially given that months around the same time of its release, we get the newest Call of Duty, right. uh, Modern, Warfare. Modern Warfare, which is kind right. of the hallmark shooter. Right. That ushers in a decade, whole new yeah. age of, of, of shooters, exactly. which we're still living in. Right, <laughs> and you know, if you compare the two solely based on the shooting, it's it's hands down Call of Duty the whole day. Sure. But the, the, the additional things, the fact that they're sort of, you know, um, s- I don't want to call them psychic, but sort of genetic modifications that yeah. give you the ability to Plasmids. control Plasmids in yeah. the game, a lightning, fire, so yeah. on and so forth. All bees. of that. Bees. <laughs> bees. The bees. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, so Rapture is like this, the, I don't know, what. how did we describe Rapture? It's this. Art Deco. It's, yeah. It's this utopian city. Art Art, art Deco, former utopian. Dystopia right? yeah, It's a dystopia. Point, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So it started out as this beautiful free market experiment. Yeah. And this is sort of where the ideology of the whole game comes in. When you when you first go, when you first start the game, you swim up to this lighthouse and you go inside this lighthouse and there's these big red banners with gold type on them. And they have phrases like, um, no gods, no kings, only man, or something like that. Um, so a lot of the, the, the whole principle behind the city of rapture under the, under the sea is that... Um, there's no law, there's no government. There's no government. And it's only the free market that's going to determine how things happen. Uh, I, those of you who are familiar with 18th, 17th century Enlightenment thought and all of the sort of free market stuff will, might know about the invisible hand. Uh, in, in, in Bioshock, we have the Great Chain. Um, so the Great Chain is this idea that the market will sort of magically and really mysteriously make sure that all of the right people get the best things and that will produce the most good for everyone. And Andrew Ryan is sort of the guy who 
is the, the center of this ideology. He sort of represents this ideology as a thorough believer in it, and that's sort of the foundation of this underwater city. And this is what Hawking calls, and what philosophers call, Randian objectivism. Yes. Right? So based on the philosophies of Ayn Rand, mm-hmm. uh, philosopher, thinker in the uh, 1950s, mid, mid-century yeah. America, who kind of perpetuated the idea of like secular capitalist ideology. Yeah. Um, that there is an invisible hand, the market will always determine who is the right person. People who are failing, like the, the poor, um, the dispossessed, it is their fault and that people should not feel bad for them because of that. So yeah. an essentially yeah. selfish, exactly. essentially greedy, but that is the best for society right. philosophy. Right. It's a very, um, and so what what the game really does really in an interesting way, and, and the question of whether or not this is a critique is the thing that I think we get to next, is that it takes this ideology and it sort of creates this city, and then it really, I mean, things are not going well. Things in ain't rapture. going well. No, they're rapture. really not. Um, people are, so people have gotten into sort of genetic modification and they're, they're quote unquote splicing their bodies, uh, which just means that they're enhancing their bodies in some sort of gene modification way. Um, so this has apparently led to all sorts of like madness and sort of isolation and, and hostility between people because there's this substance that everyone needs called Adam, which is the thing that keeps everyone going. Um, and so a lot of the fighting is presumably of these splicers, and these are basically the, the, the enemies that you encounter throughout the rest of Rapture, is that they're always looking for Adam. They're always trying to get more Adam. Um, and the whole economy ends up becoming based on around this this material that's needed to keep those mm-hmm. genetic modifications running. Um, so I think, did you have, what What else did you have for your uh, So summary? I have a summary yeah. of how Rapture became a dystopia. Okay, yeah. I don't know Maybe if we want to hear this. Jump, uh, jump into it real quick, yeah. So this is a, you only hear this on audio phones recovered. Um, I'm just, I have no clue what to call that. I think so, they're called audio tapes. Audio tapes, audio, tapes, audio yeah. logs. Uh, audio logs, something. We so there's a man logs. named Frank Fontaine mm-hmm. uh, who becomes very important. He is a, he is in Rapture. He is the kind of leader of the criminal underworld of Rapture, uh, which was not really planned for by Ryan, but kind of evolved naturally. Uh, he starts leading a revolution against Ryan. He is purportedly killed. Uh, later, a man named Atlas rises up who leads kind of the culmination of the revolution. He kills almost all of Ryan's subjects and all the people that not have kind of locked themselves away. So you get these kind Mm -hmm. of crazy people like Sander Cohen in the gameplay uh, who are Ryan followers. But, you know, this is a massive city that only has a few hundred people in it, right? Because it's kind of the consequences of a civil war. And then that's where you kind of enter, right? Is in this place of like, there's a man named Atlas. He's the guy on your radio Mm -hmm. who's telling you we have to kill Ryan. Uh, Ryan has my family. Uh, He has a beautiful Irish brogue. (laughs) He Um, does. (laughs) And that's where you kind of get locked in. You get your wrench, you get your gun, yeah. and you have Atlas, and that's the start of the game. Yeah. And and then and then the verb of action that you do throughout the game is mostly kill and collect. I mean, this is to put it in, in really stark terms, you go through and in your first person shooter mode, you go around, you see enemies, they try to kill you, you kill them, and then you take money and supplies from them. Um, so that's sort of the way that you interact with this world for the most part. Um so let's let's come back to Hawking's piece really quick here, because I think um, this is where this is I think we've sort of established enough about Bioshock. The setting, yeah. yeah, to sort of say where Hawking wants to push on Bioshock. So um, 
Terrell, what is what would you say is is Hawking's main critique? What what is this what is this dissonance that he sees between narrative and gameplay? What's what's happening there? So maybe to use um, Hawking's own words, I think he yeah. establishes sort of two contracts within the game. Um, and the first he calls the sort of a ludic contract, which is sort of the game part of the ludonarrative dissonance, in which the way he phrases it is, seek power and you will progress. And that makes sense in terms of the way that the game sort of plays out. You know, um, part of the way, part of the mechanic of the game is that there's a sort of little sisters who, in terms of the ability to do the sort of gene splicing and the genetic modifications, the little sisters, um, as far as the narrative goes, kind of walk around and they sort of absorb, they, well, literally they take the blood from these dead corpses. Yeah. And there's been, a, well, according to the story, an implanted slug in them. Yes, yeah. sea slugs. Yes. Yeah, Adam comes yeah. That's, the, that's the magical Right, course. and it sort of is able to process that blood or those innards and then mm -hmm. turn it into this material that can alter um, the, the human genome, yeah. give it the ability to do all these amazing things. Like bees. Like bees. bees. Definitely bees. <laughs> right, so. Buzz. You know, in order to, to get a hold of that, right, and because that is sort of the major kind of commodity in the world, yeah. many of these sort of splicers eventually kind of become addicted to getting at them, so they're chasing and really doing harm to these little girls mm -hmm. in order to get that. So very kind of violent setup in and of itself, but what's sort of been invented to prevent that is the Big Daddy. The Big Daddy, which yeah. is the kind of hallmark of Bioshock. He's yes. on the cover, mm -hmm. yeah. or they are on the cover. Yeah. And so the 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 big daddy is just this big suited. It's like a diving suit, and he's got a big drill on his arm, or he has a gun. Mm -hmm. And and there's and the there's every time you see a little sister, which are these little children. Again, they look like they're maybe eight years old. It's followed around by this hulking sort of sort of creature that defends it at all times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so, um, which are kind of like not mini bosses, but they're the they're the kind of like. The game. This is what you want to do. Is you have to kill Big Daddy right. really hard. You need a lot right. of ammo. You need lots yeah. of magic plasmids. Yeah. And as and as has been said in, in many other uh, sort of people in much writing. There's been a lot of writing about Bioshock. We should mention that this is like a this is a big thing. This was a big thing for game studies for a long time. Um, a big thing that's been mentioned is that this is the moral choice that the game supposedly is offering you. This is the the touted moral choice. Is that when you encounter these little sisters and these big uh, daddies, big daddies, big dad. There are big daddies. Big daddies. Bigs daddy. Bigs daddy. Big daddies. I'm just yeah. Anyway, it's you know <laughs> the gender things there are very. We could we could get into that, but um, when you when you encounter these big daddies and little sisters, you're supposed to kill the big daddy, and then you have the option to either save in some way by yeah. Wrestle so, you or so harvest. You are, you are given yeah. the option the first time you encounter little sisters. Splicers have killed the big daddy. Yeah. And Atlas tells you okay. Here's what you do. You harvest her. You can get a bunch of Adam from her. You can just take it from her in a very like visceral, you kill her kind of way. Yeah. There's another character we haven't mentioned named Dr. Bridget Tannenbaum. Yes. Uh, who Tannenbaum. Is, I, have to Tannenbaum. Do, I have to do it because I'm German. She is like, indeed. German, uh, so. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so she appears there and says, no, there's another thing. She's invented a plasmid that can actually remove the slug from the little sister's body. And right. so she's like, if you do this, you know, you won't get the Adam. But you get like the feel goodies, you know, yeah. of uh, not having killed a small child. Right, right. And so um, this is what Hawking has a problem with. Exactly. Is he says that I accept that basis, and under under this kind of like ideology of Randian objectivism, the only proper response 
is kill a bunch of little children, right? Yeah. Like if I need if I need to accomplish my goals, if I want to be powerful to seek power, I need to kill a small child on board. Yeah. So that's the first contract. Yeah. yeah. And then the second contract? Yeah. So the second contract um, is the narrative uh, contract, which is help Atlas and you will progress. And his problem is that um, the sort of interaction between those two um, those two contracts comes down to they're not in line with the sort of Randian uh, objectives that the gameplay is based on. So that rational, yeah. that rational self-interest above all. Yeah. Right. In other words, why should I help Atlas at mm-hmm. all? Shouldn't I just right. be doing what I want? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's. Um, Interesting, and he sort of kind of lays it out. It's like, you know, if Atlas is so opposed to Ryan, then what you seem to be so philosophically aligned with Ryan because of the way that you have to interact um, with the game. Yeah. You know, that which, ludic contract mm-hmm. seems to line up really closely with Ryan's Randian's philosophy. rational self interest, which is Embodied Andrew Ryan's thing. Andrew yeah. Ryan. Right. 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 So for him, it's it's the fundamental tension that creates a friction between the sort of, on the one hand, you're doing this sort of altruistic thing because you think, and you can see the sort of dystopia that's falling out around you, but what you end up doing in the game is so contrary to that. And I guess for me, and I'd love to get your opinion, that's that's the beginning, that's what makes the game productive is the way that those aren't necessarily dissonant, but they they feed each other, right? You know, it's a dystopia. Yeah. yeah. This is this is violence. Order has collapsed. Therefore, yeah. violence necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I just th- I think that, that that one kind of sets up the other. I don't know. Yeah. So I have a, I have so many thoughts on this. Okay. <laughs> but I have a, a just a kind of fundamental thing that I was kind of shocked by was I don't know if you guys I did not kill the little sister. <laughs> yeah. Never. My never initial one. response was like, oh, okay, like I'm okay at gaming, like I can get by. Yeah. And here's the kind of really interesting thing, and this is actually received a lot of criticism in game yes. reviews mm-hmm. is that you actually get rewarded for not harvesting them as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. you so do. every third little sister you don't kill, you get a gift from uh, Tannenbaum. Yeah. However it's pronounced in the German. You were, you did Tannenbaum. It was, yeah, it was great. It was great. <laughs> and yeah, so it's actually, the, the choice is really not much of a choice at all. But here's the interesting thing is that Hawking takes this assumption, yes, everyone will just go in and start killing little kids when we are told right. to. Right. Yeah. Right? And so if you actually, his argument kind of fell apart right at the beginning for me in that I did not accept that ludic contract. I said, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm imagining myself as Jack. I'm an okay guy in a kind of crazy atmosphere. I'm just going to roll with it. I'll save some little kids, right? So actually that way they do align together. That like I'm just trying to do what's best for this crazy dystopia. This all falls apart, of course, once we learn about the big twists. Yes. (laughs) But before we get to the big twist, I will, I do want to respond directly to that, which is that. Um, so one, my when I read uh, Hawking's criticism, and I take it on its face value that the fundamental moral question, which is ultimately this the question of whether or not there's dissonance here, um, is that do you harvest the little sisters or not? And I don't feel like it's necessary to really focus on that in order for there to be some sort of some sort of dissonance. I mean, the way you interact with the whole game, it's not just in this one moral choice where like, should I harvest this young girl or not? But like, the way you move about the game is to kill things and to collect. And that in and of itself is, you know, 
Hawking might argue, is in line with Randian rational self-interest, this radical pursuit of what's good for me is killing the splicers, getting their money, upgrading my guns, buying more ammunition, getting new powers and that kind of stuff. Um, so that even if you don't focus in on this specific moral choice, that sort of acqui- the, uh, the, the acquiring and the pursuit of your own interests over the interests of the splicers, which is just to like mumble about being alone and to sort of just pick at corpses the whole time, is kind of all they do. It's all you ever see them doing. Um, that even there, you've got a moment where like, ah, oh, you know, you are performing these actions for your own self-interest. But then to, to go against this at the same time, and we've talked about this a little bit earlier, but like the genre of first-person shooter is all about, I mean, like Hawking wants to make the point, and I think this is important to, uh, to work through. Hawking wants to make the point that because the game does not allow you to sort of, in a unified way, be a rational self-interest pursuer because you end up listening to and helping Atlas, um, that this is some sort of dissonance. Um, and I've lost my train of thought. Oh well, no. Can we get to the twist now? Yeah, let's get to the <laughs> twist. Let's get so to the twist. So it's time. Yeah. Atlas isn't a real person. Oh dang. Atlas is Frank Fontaine. Yes. Um, yeah. and even more crazily, uh, Andrew Ryan, who you eventually end up killing with his own golf club. Yes. Uh, was your dad, yeah, and you were an embryo that was stolen from him yeah. and forcibly aged in two years to become an adult yes. and implanted with mind control techniques. Yeah, and and the reveal comes in this scene. So the whole time you've been you've been following Atlas's orders to go find Andrew Ryan and kill him, and when you finally meet him, um, there's this scene where uh, right before you walk into his office, you see the words, uh, and this is "Would you kindly." written on a wall with a bunch of pictures in, in sort of blood. And um, this is important. This is a thing where you do kind of need to play the game to sort of get a sense of how important those words are. From the very get-go, from the very first moments of the game, once you're in Rapture, Atlas over the radio is using this phrase, would you kindly step out of the bathysphere? Would you kindly follow that person? And you think, oh, this is just a lovable, charming Irishman. Right. He's speaking just using a little... Way. Yeah, exactly. And what it turns out to be, as you see in the following scene with Andrew Ryan at this really crucial moment, would you kindly is this sort of key phrase to, to like, command... It's mind control, basically. It's a very bone-chilling moment yeah. Yeah. where there's an audio log, and it's a small child who's been, assumedly Jack, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, holding a puppy and Dr. Suchong, who I think is at some point working with Tenenbaum, but is also yeah, kind of, he's dead by the time of Bioshock. Right, so, yeah, right. Um, sort of working with him, and he sort of is working through the kind of mind control t- techniques that are sort of used on the player character. Um, and you know, he's sort of petting this puppy, and you know, he's really enjoying it. And then said, "Now, would you kindly snap the puppy's neck?" And you can hear the child sort of trying to resist, and eventually doing and it. And the there's a whine. Limber. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so th- so uh, that's crazy. Yeah. That whole reveal. But yeah. Hawking says that um, he was actually kind of disgusted by the reveal. Like yeah. he, the the words he used is that it uh, the reveal openly mocks us for having willingly yeah. suspended our disbelief. Yeah. Right. So the idea that you know you accept when you start a game that like you have to go certain places. You know that some guy's gonna tell you objectives. Uh, to actually say like no, you were forced to do that the whole time is yeah. is actually insulting yeah. to the, to him, and I think we we kind of disagreed with that. 
Yeah. Your thoughts, Derek. Yeah. So, um, oh, God, where do I begin? Um, I feel like the – so there, there's, a, there's, there's one thing that I read actually in a different article by a different person who we didn't uh, – we're not officially reading for today, but if you're interested in it, check out Brent Abel's uh, – Brent Abel's cycles essay called violence. The Cycles of Violence in Bioshock. It's a really good, it's a, it's a good sort of reflection on the whole Bioshock series as it's out now. This is a very recent article. One of the things that I find not convincing about Hawking's argument, or no, I guess this is the point that, that I do find convincing about Hawking's argument, is that after that reveal, so it's been revealed to you that this would you kindly phrase has been happening in the narrative, and it also seems to have been controlling you. You know, it's sort of like, the 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 ways in which games compel us to do certain of sort certain kinds of things through the interface like an arrow pointing you in a particular direction or just like mm-hmm. you're in a first person shooter you objective. have a gun like what are you going to do to the world you're going to shoot the world like that that's kind of how you <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of how you you interact with it so um there, there's supposed to be this moment where after you realize you've been under mind control, you're sort of freed of... Dr. Tannenbaum kind yeah. of unlocks your yeah. free will. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, but after that, nothing really changes. Yeah, so this is the really interesting thing is yeah. that up until that point, I think it's actually a pretty beautiful mechanism when they reveal that you're under mind control because it completely explains the game, right? Like, you don't even have this moment of, why am I in this place? Why am, do I always have to be moving forward? Why do I have to kill these people? Yeah. It's completely explained. You were being mind controlled the whole right, time. Right. So whereas Hawking thought it was kind of insulting or disgusting, I thought it was actually a pretty beautiful way of taking central game elements yeah. of like, we're playing a game, we have to do certain things, we have to fulfill goals and objectives and making that a part of the narrative. But the real crux is that after you're free of mind control, you still go out killing people all the yeah, time. Yeah. You have no choice still. You go and kill Fontaine. Yeah. Spoilers, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, you still are kind of following now t- Tannenbaum's telling you what to do. Right. Right. Right, right. You know, I what I find what I find interesting is that um what his piece I think reveals is that the game really does hinge so much on how it is that you uh how you handle that moral choice. Yeah. And how that generates the kind of attachment or way that you relate or feel within the game. Because I guess, you know, if someone went through and and harvested all the little sisters and thought that, yeah, this is in line with what the game wants me to do. This is playing the game right. Yeah. And yeah, I could see that. But, you know, I think we're sitting here in a room full of people who chose this other thing to do. Yeah. I did did harvest one little sister. But that's okay. You can harvest just one. Oh, yeah? And still get the good ending. Okay. Uh. <laughs> right. So, like, you can just take a little taste of the dark side. That's that was okay. just some pragmatism. You yeah. Know, some John Dewey there. Well, you know, you can just harvest little, one. Just one. William James said that, anyway. I believe. Harvest one little sister and you're okay. But yeah. more than that, then it's nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. In, his, in his ethical Yeah, choices. I think that's in, like, you know, James on We'll put the citation in the, in the show notes. <laughs> uh, Terrell, you were saying, like, we're all sort of taking that certain approach. Uh, yeah, we're just... the. I think that in part that sort of – if you continue to sort of think through that sort of moral choice that you're offered, yeah. because it really is a kind of baton pass um, between who the, who the narrative slash objective provider of the game is yeah. from Atlas to Tenenbaum – but then here's Tenenbaum who's helping you now. And I had to – I think I looked this up at one point. 
But depending on how you've harvested the little sisters or whether you've rescued them or not, yeah. uh, her dialogue in it the does. returning cutscene actually changes. Yeah. Um, mm. She's the, a lot angrier with you, but it's actually kind of a fulfillment in a weird way of this kind of... I, yeah, I guess we should I'm kind of on board with like this game represents Randy and objectivism. It's pretty yeah. clear that it's very much an influence, but yeah. uh, after uh, you are freed of your mind control it actually still is kind of objectively in your interest to go kill Fontaine because he's trying to kill you. Yeah. You want to get out of here, even though, you know, Tannenbaum's another person that maybe you disagree with. Yeah. You both have skills that you need to use. Yeah. It's still kind of like freewheeling capitalism. Like you're just <laughs> your own ubermensch that is trying to fill out um, your own philosophy, and that means killing this guy with yeah. the help of this German scientist. Woman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, I've been trying to, I've sort of lost where what my critique was exactly. So like, I mean, for me, like one of the essential questions is, um, and maybe we could pivot here to a, to a different question. It's a similar question, but we're, we're sort of dancing around it, is do we believe that Bioshock actually carries out a critique of this ideology? Because um, it's obviously present there. Um, I know, Kyle, you were telling me earlier that sort of the whole pretense of Randy and objectivism of Andrew Ryan and his ideology was actually a, a relatively late, like a, in the middle of game development. Yeah, this is actually a really interesting part. I, I watched some interviews with Ken Levine or yeah. Levine, the, the maker of the game. And the what I assumed the, the core of Bioshock was always this kind of atmosphere. Because when you yeah. read reviews of Bioshock, that, that word always comes up. Like, it's a great atmosphere. You know, even if the the gameplay isn't the best, it's not modern warfare, like, you are in this place, right? I assumed that was the kind of genesis of the game. Actually, the genesis was these kind of three types, which were uh, gatherers, so like little people that gathered some kind of substance that made you magical, protectors, uh, big protectors of those little people, and then kind of mutant people, so people who were always on the lookout for those gatherers. Uh, these eventually, of course, become the little sisters, big daddies, and splicers. And they said... Uh, they first set the game. I think it was in a um, like a a, a a deserted Nazi laboratory, mm -hmm. and then it was mm -hmm. on a space station. And the developers were kind of told, make this like less science fiction y. You know, yeah. it shouldn't just be just yeah. System Shock again. Right. Uh, we want it to be a little more complicated. So they said, okay, we'll make it. It's not necessarily steampunk. It's not. It's something else. You know, but 1950s America underwater. Like, uh -huh. who's done that? Right. Right. Like, right. right. Uh, uh, so taking that as the kind of um, basis. And, and the, the maker of the game, Ken Levine, he has a liberal arts degree, and he uh, had read Rand and George Orwell and these kind of mid-50s, kind of Cold War-centered books and said, why not that as the setting? Sure. Right? So yeah. this, I mean, it wasn't late in the game, but kind yeah. of, yeah, the mid-game development, the kind of what I think the most impressive part of Bioshock yeah. was put in not as kind of the foundational element. Yeah, yeah. And, and so for me, like... I certainly the, the the scholarship for this game has focused a lot on this question of is this ideology that's present in the game what is the what is the what is the game doing with that ideology mm -hmm. is it just sort of showing it to us and having us experience it and then just say well there it is make up your mind <laughs> or is it sort of carrying out some sort of critique on it um, so I like I, I have to share a personal story about this game. Um, so I actually played this sometime around 2009, it must have been. Hmm. 2009 or 2010. 
I was in college at uh, Belmont University, and I had gone there to be a music business major. And it was the it was between my freshman year and my sophomore year, and I'd taken a philosophy class as well. So I was like, "Oh, philosophy is kind of cool." Um, and I was like looking for summer books to read, and my dad was like, "Hey, why don't you read The Fountainhead?" And I was like, "Okay, sure. I don't know. I a novel as well. by Ayn Rand. A novel by Ayn Rand, and importantly, so I read The Fountainhead, and I was like, "Oh, this is cool. Yeah, do what you want. Like, be <laughs> d- greed is good." And you should, you should like just do whatever you want because what you want is good. Self-interest is the best thing. So I was like kind of on board with the whole Randian thing for a little while. And, you know, to the payoff is that actually what I wanted to do was be a philosophy major. So that was the thing that made me change to philosophy. So in a way, I probably wouldn't be here at grad school without Ayn Rand. But and that is the one good thing she ever it, did. Maybe it is. It really, and you know, I think it's actually. I remember listening to philosophy podcasts like a couple years after that. People saying that like actually, there's a lot of people in uh, like non-traditional university communities, like rural areas, where like the like the ideology they have is a very conservative one. And Ayn Rand is sort of this bridge where you like she does talk about some sort of philosophical concepts. And you can like start having a conversation there, right? It's such a like it's it's got sort of like a anti, and uh, sort of atheist position, and that's like non traditional capitalist, yeah, you know. which is like has some points of of tension with like maybe a dominant like conservative Modern conservatism is exactly. very much in tension, but people still kind of hold up Rand as kind of one of their progenitors right. in a weird way. But yeah, right, right. she was very atheist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and very, uh, yeah. Yeah. So the, the the key thing here is that I was I was reading The Fountainhead and I was also playing BioShock. I played BioShock that summer as well. And when I played through the game, I you know, I knew what shooters were. I'd played them before. Um I was like, "Oh, I recognize this ideology as the thing I just read." But it was not immediately a, like I did my experience wasn't after playing that game like, "Oh, I should maybe rethink my thoughts about Randian objectivism." Maybe it's like horrible and maybe it leads to this terrible thing. I was just like, oh, that's cool. It's just this idea in this weird world. And wow, you you can have a reading of this game, an understanding of this game, where Andrew Ryan, because in that key scene where your where your mind control is revealed, he basically commands you to kill him. And he hands you the golf club that you're going to kill him with, and he says, Would you kill, would you kindly? And it's this really intense moment. And you could come away from that moment thinking, wow, Andrew Ryan's ideology is so great, but it's just not meant for humans, and like people are just not good enough to live up to it. <laughs> now, that's a really strong interpretation of, of that. But like I, I sort of had some thoughts in those directions. So like I, I think it's worth posing the question within the context of Hawking's piece and also just broadly, is does this game actually critique the ideal ideology it presents? And if so, like, where does that happen, you know? And, like, through what mechanisms? I I mean, cards on the table. Yeah. I think we can let it out now. Yeah. I am not a Randian objectivist. <laughs> I, think, I mean, you know, I don't want to shame anyone, but... Uh, <laughs> um, Me neither. I'm yeah. generally that skeptical of, of free markets as uh, making a good society. The interesting the thing about thing, Rand yeah. is, though, is she's different than someone like Milton Friedman. So Milton Friedman mm. said in the 60s that... A free market would make a just society. Yeah. Whereas Rand is like, no, it wouldn't make a just society. It would just make the best society. Right. And I disagree with that too. But <laughs> I think it's probably a fairer argument that like at least this kind of freewheeling capitalism of like everyone has no uh, 
duty to another person, screw over as many people as you want, it's all about yourself, that would probably um, produce a society, I think, pretty similar to what happens in Bioshock, like yeah. immense wealth. Um, one of the kind of subplots that's mentioned in one of the audio Vox caster phones um, <laughs> is that the little sisters are actually orphans in the society that uh, Tannenbaum convinces Ryan that they have to take, oh no, or Fontaine. I think it's Fontaine. Tannenbaum convinces Fontaine that they have to, um, they can incubate slugs in people and mm-hmm. produce 30 times as much atom. And he's like, oh, well, they're, just little, they're little kids who contribute nothing to society. Might as well take them, right? right? <laughs> so this kind of like mm-hmm. horrifying fulfillment of yeah. this uh, selfishness you see right. in the case. And so I played Bioshock seeing that as a critique, right? That if like, let's say we took Randian objectivism, this kind of everyone out for themselves, put it in what is literally a contained atmosphere. Yeah, right? that's important. Both literally and figuratively an atmosphere that has is supposed to have no contact with the outside world. Mm-hmm. They are contained in the city that is a, it's, its own unique atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens? And what happens is this kind of horrifying dystopia, right? Like yeah. it's great for a few years, but then you have an equally powerful ubermensch person, Frank Fontaine, come yeah. to oppose Andrew Ryan. Yep. There's a massive civil war. Everyone goes out of their mind and is nuts. So yeah. I wouldn't want to live in rapture after yeah. the dystopia. Yeah. So that was my take on it. But I sure. found it really interesting that other people kind of had different yeah. takes. And it really comes into that video games are probably more than other forms of media, like a lot more about participation, right? Absolutely. So if a book, you know, you're not getting everything from a book when you read it, right? You have to imagine who, what the characters look like, you know, yeah. but you see what they're saying. You can, for most parts, like see, you know, see their thoughts. Yeah. Um, kind of where, how they're experiencing the world. Yeah. You have to kind of put a lot of that into a video game. So you can come away with completely different perceptions. Of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's worth mentioning how smart the game actually is in terms of its narrative and the way that it packages everything. I mean, just particularly thinking about the medical pavilion. Um, it's one of the first areas that you sort of come through of Rapture. And one of the things that I think it constantly sort of pushes against or is sort of a recurring theme, particularly in the medical pavilion, is that there's this doctor, I forget, Stein... No. Oh, I have it in my notes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Steinbaum? I can't remember. Stein... Steinem. I think his name is Steinem. Steinem. Maybe he's just Steinem, yeah. Um, and he's a surgeon... Uh, but he's also sort of an artist informed by Picasso of sorts. Oh, and yeah. so people come to him, particularly women, and say, make me beautiful. But his notion of beauty is not, it's not the same sort of customer transaction that we typically think surgery to be. Right. Steinman. Steinman. Steinman, there it is. There it is. Um, so he ends up sort of mi- often disfiguring and sort of, you know, that's precisely why so many of the splicers look so deformed. And walking through that area and just seeing all these people and listening to some of the audio logs, Foscast things. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> where, you know, women will sort of recount that, you know, yes, he's going to make me beautiful, this, 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 that, and the other. And then you listen later down the log, some of the later ones, and they're horribly disfigured. Yeah. Right? Um, and then eventually there's the, um, it's not Fort Frolic, it's the area, I think, somewhat after that where there's a sort of arborarium underwater yeah. and yeah. the trees. And one of the audio logs there where he's like, I built this. and But, you know, the kind of yeah. thing there is like we need the trees because there's nothing down here that produces oxygen. Yeah. Um, so is this a kind of public good? But those don't really exist. Or because, is it a personal good? Right. right. That just happens to extend to other people. Right. Yeah. So now everybody has to pay you to breathe. And if yeah. no one's paying you, then I'm just going to kill 
all these trees and yeah. or shut you off from the you know the atmosphere right right and and one thing I mean and this is starting to venture outside of games and more into the question of like does the market provide everything but what we don't see is really the beginning of Rapture. We don't really know. It's, it's We could assume, and I think maybe Andrew Ryan implies, but never really directly says, that he like financed it all himself and paid for everything. One of the biggest like uh, arguments for the, the market being the thing that should take care of everything is it often excludes these histories where like government funding helps build yeah. these roads mm-hmm. or helps build... Uh, give people incentives. Don't even get me started. I mean, this. yeah, I feel like we could go for like a whole half hour on this, but um, historian in the house. Yeah, 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 I could, yeah, yeah. But just like, um, so we don't we don't know what the foundations of Rapture are, and because those are concealed from us, we can imagine that An- that Andrew Ryan's ideology about himself—that he's a self-made man, that he did all of this himself—is uh, true, right? We don't have any way to contradict that, and so that's a moment where. The game, you know, if we want to push back on this idea that it really does a great job of critiquing, we could push back and say, actually, you know, we're not maybe given some essential information about how this whole ideological project got started. We we were seeing it here collapsing, but another way that people often critique those kinds of uh, arguments is is by pointing to its origins and saying, no, you didn't actually start all from your elbow grease and your pure will. You had... You were educated in a society that allowed you to think these things and, and give you all sorts of So that's support. an important point where I think we have to realize that it's a game. Oh yeah, right? definitely. No, no, <laughs> and, right. Well, well, and, and and let's let me let me let me contextualize what I'm saying there. Sure. I think there's an easy way to kind of write it up. It's like it's just a video game. It doesn't really have to do all that kind of work. It's not right. the same as sitting down and reading, you know, an actual academic book. Sure. And that's not precisely the claim that I'm making. I'm saying yeah. that the type of work that the game is going to be able to do is not going to be it's not going to excel where a book is going to excel. Sure. So I think that precisely what we were talking about earlier in terms of a game being able to uh, perform a certain type of, well, using something like the objectives, right, and the ways that objectives can kind of, you know, we take the sort of granted, like, you know, you open up a game, you put it in there, it's going to have to tell you what to do, and so it uses Atlas to do that, but then sort of playing and riffing off Atlas and then sort of playing with your expectations as such, that is something that the medium of the game is going to be particularly excel, excel at. And, right. you know, maybe there's an audio log that no one's discovered yet. Yeah, I don't know, I, Kyle, it seems like you found every single one of them. <laughs> I'm so. not sure about that. <laughs> I think there's like 70-something. Yeah, there's I've a lot. I've never gone like 40 or 50. I bet they're on YouTube. Oh, I'm and, sure. and they're very, like, I could be wrong. There might actually be some audio log that does say something about that. But There could be. There yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, there's some stuff about it, but I'm not sure how useful yeah. it would be. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, just, I just realized yeah. his name is Atlas, and he's like your map guy. Yes, I was thinking about that while I was playing. Well, I mean, that's it, it plays right into the other. Like, I mean, that's kind of one of your central idea, right? Um, Ocarina of Time, my my my, in my opinion, the greatest game ever made. <laughs> You have Navi, right? Sure, Navi. Mm-hmm. And so, short for navigation, who is your yeah. kind of like guider. Yeah, yeah. So were they even I taking this? I never realized kind of, that. Yeah. Oh man, we're blowing everyone's <laughs> mind today. I gotta be honest, I didn't admit it, but I also didn't realize oh, that. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, they're even taking that kind of most fundamental, like yeah, the guy, person, fairy who guides you. Yeah. Their name is a pun off of maps. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And well, kind of and destabilizing that even that norm for you. I, I always just connected it to Atlas Shrugged. I mean. You oh, know. of course too. Oh yeah. I mean, oh well, then we should mention too the I, I didn't re- I had to, uh, oh, I watched a video good. that mentioned this. This is really good. Uh, when you f- your final fight with Frank Fontaine, he has juiced himself up with so much Adam 
that he doesn't even look human anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, he looks exactly like the man on the cover of Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. Yeah. This is so, so you are literally okay. So this blew Derek's mind this, when it, I told him yeah, that. Yeah, I did not. Make uh, this so you are before. literally killing at the end of the game the embodiment yeah. of Ayn Rand's Ubermensch, right? Yeah, Superhuman. Yeah. The man in front of the Rockefeller Building. Uh-huh. Uh, if you watch Thirty Rock or if you've been to New York. Yeah. Yeah, I think those. I think that's a really good point, and it, there are all those little little things that sort of add up to like if you're if you're aware of that reference, or even you know if you stumble across it later, that that sort of makes that more that point more vivid. Yeah, you know, Derek, when you were telling the story about how you sort of came into yeah. you know, philosophy through um, Ayn Rand, when I started playing, I was beginning a couple of courses because I was a freshman uh, in college, and I was beginning a couple of courses in uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. And one of the, we, we ended up reading Marx, right? Because, you know, Marx kind of put in sort of philosophical conversations. And I, I wanted to, you know, I was kind of in a very, you know, Here's that side of the debate. How do I get the other side? Uh-huh, and uh-huh. then, you know, because I remember there's the sort of message that he gives, uh, or there's a recording that plays as the bas- bathosphere's descending into rapture yeah. initially. And it says, you know, you know, who is entitled to the sweat of a man's brow? Yeah. Uh, no says the no says Washington belongs to the poor. No says Moscow belongs to everybody. No says that that again belongs to God. Yeah. I rejected all those and I created my and I was like, so Anarchism? Is that what's going on <laughs> it's here? It's an anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. yeah, like literally, right. no government, only capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And then it's like, okay, so this is the libertarian, this is the this is the pro-capitalist yeah. quasi to Marx. Now, I think, you know, if you're looking for a philosopher to challenge Marx, there are better ones. There are better ones. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> if you're looking for a philosopher about anything, there are better ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And I think, just getting back to your original question, I think it is a critique yeah. of, of Randian objectivism, especially yeah. in the ending, which this received, like, or the endings, which this received yeah. the most criticism, I think, among game uh, reviewers, yeah. um, where basically the ending is, if you harvested one or less little sister, uh, you, the game ends, uh, you kill Fontaine, you go back up to the world, you bring the little sisters with you, they mm-hmm. all like get older and everything's great, and they're at your deathbed, and they all get married, and it's beautiful. Yeah. If you kill two or more little sisters, uh, you emerge with an army of splicers to take over the world, and eventually it's implied cause a nuclear holocaust. Yeah. So this is literally like, <laughs> everything's great, and this thing, or literally like the worst possible outcome are, for humanity. You are super Hitler. Yeah, you are yeah. You are mecha Hitler yeah, in, yeah. in yeah. Doom. Uh, Hitler. Yeah, things are bad, or, or Wolfenstein. Yeah. Things are bad for you. Yeah. Um, and so the kind of like, the simplicity of the endings of like, ultra mm-hmm. good versus ultra bad, yeah. I think is actually a very kind of crude critique of yeah. the objectivism, right? So are, if you... Are there really only two? I could have sworn there, is there was a third, a third. But the third is the same as the bad one, but with just kind of nicer language. <laughs> uh, I had to look this up. So yeah, it's if you, um, where is it? My nice. Kill all of them, I think, or don't find if enough. If you do half and half, oh, okay, ah. uh, you still you you conquer Rapture. They yeah. give you the key to Rapture, and you take the little sister and you like eat her brains or whatever. <laughs> um, you go up and invade the surface and get nukes, but Tannenbaum's uh, delivery is like, eh, what can you do? <laughs> As opposed to like you bastard, yeah. you did these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, even so I think that's a critique at its core, but but a crude one, and that's sure. what kind of pissed off people like you know uh, Yahtzee, Ben yeah. Croshaw, or other yeah. kind of reviewers. The kind of hyper simplified, yeah. ultra good angel, ultra bad devil. Look, yeah. we gave you morality, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the era of that kind of game. I Indeed. mean, you know, 
we were talking about Mass Effect earlier, and Mass Effect yeah, runs almost into the comically. exact yeah. same problem, Renegade or Paragon. Like, mm-hmm. There's no... Pretty much yep. all Bioware games are kind of centered around the morality, light side, dark side, mm-hmm. good, yeah. evil, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that sort of duality. Well, um, I think we should probably wrap things up. I think that was a really great... Um, well, do we want to talk about Errant Signal for We should at least minutes? mention it, yeah, definitely. So I think, if, if you don't mind, I think Errant Signal, or Chris Franklin um, is his name, does a pretty great job of saying the whole debate about ludology versus narratology and ludonarrative dissonance is essentially not a debate at all. Yeah. Uh, Terrell, I think you probably know this the best. What, like, what, what is he kind of getting at in the video? So his he makes two major points I think are worth taking away. The first is that um, ludology and narratology as fields or even approaches to video games were never... It was never a Jedi-Sith situation, Yeah, right? that's a that good way to say it. <laughs> Gonzalo Frasca kind of emerges, and I forget exactly when. I want to say either late oh. 90s or early 2000s. Was that a conference, like late, early 2000s? I think it's late 90s. Okay. Okay. And he thinks that, you know, look, we have all these different vocabularies to talk about games. Um, let's make one that talks about play, because that's essentially, that's kind of what's unique to games, and we need to think about it. You know, if we always sort of collapse it into something else, it's not going to be able to capture the entirety of what it is. Um, and so that happens. And then X many years later, he has to come out with another piece yeah. called Ludologist Love Narrative 2, uh, <laughs> where he explains that, look, yes, game and play, but that doesn't mean I don't want to talk about narrative or that yeah. games don't do really interesting narrative work. Yeah. So that that sort of idea that the two are sort of against each other Intention. right, is a, a sort of boogeyman that everybody's kind of looking under the bed for. Now, that being said, I think he does acknowledge that it's a real, it has become, even if discursively produced, a real boogeyman. Yeah. Everybody kind of wants in, to In popular society, you hear this all exactly. the time. You're like, I mean, the examples he gives, which I think are perfect, especially because I own both games, is like, Destiny, great gameplay, phenomenal gameplay, expert at it, story, garbage. Yeah. Dragon Age Inquisition, excellent story, yeah. great, terrible gameplay, right. Right? right? And that we still see these as like, these are the two halves, and you know, a game can still be good if you sacrifice one, but that's what mm-hmm. you gotta do. Right. Whereas you wouldn't go into a movie, he makes a comparison, you wouldn't go into a movie and say, right. yeah, you know, The Hobbit had great cinematography and an okay story, so that's okay. You know, you'd say like, it was a good movie because right. it had these things. These right. are not like two elements, yeah. they're all one element making the video yeah. game. These are, they're not, they're not in opposition, and I think yeah. that's the key thing, the point that he makes there is it's not like, it's not gameplay versus narrative. That's not the title of this episode. It's mm-hmm. gameplay and narrative. They're they're functioning maybe in in different ways, but they're not a, they're not opposed to each other. The designers didn't create them to be opposed or something like right. that. Right. And I think the 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 thing that makes that such an interesting conversation is that say for example Call of Duty and I Anybody who's played any of the modern warfare games, especially, like, I'm sure you can tell me, like, this is when the nuke went off, or this is yeah. when there was a terrorist attack, or this is when we shot up the the airport. But, like, what is the story of those games? Yeah. Who shot who? Yeah. What is going on? I mean, there's soap, there's McTavish, y'all are running around, somebody gets stabbed. Soap! Like, right? <laughs> Those are, it's, it's, it's I've played every Call of Duty game, so I can't, I can't really complain. I mean, but but, but that's not <laughs> to say that those games are not compelling yeah. because of the gameplay. Like, yeah. There's something... yeah, so the elements are both contributing to a greater whole. Not like, yeah, the gameplay was great, and that's one part, but the story. It's like, yeah. no, like, these are both 
contributing to something sure. this game. Right. Sure. I mean, it is interesting to think about what it is that keeps you or what it is that yeah. you'll you'll yeah. walk away from. Like say Absolutely. if we look in the example of an opposite direction, gone home, yeah. the things that really caught me and the things that I'll tell you about if, you know, I'm not gonna say anything because I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> I think we might have again an episode about gone yeah. home. Yeah. Right. It would say. be worth worth it. Yeah. Right. Um you know, it's not gonna be me rummaging around and finding, oh, this is the tape or this is this is any other. It's gonna be, well, what did that then lead to me into sort of the narrative? So I do think that there are two registers of ways to enjoy a particular form of medium. And that consumer wise, it's weird that, you know, we kind of register those in different ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to pit them against each other is is not necessarily is not useful. Yeah. And for us as scholars who want to talk about games, I think it's like he he he's sort of couching in the video, he's sort of aware that this ludology narratology debate was largely in its original form a sort of scholarly mm-hmm. um sort of thing like that got the, disseminated through like 4chan and right, Reddit. Right. Right. So like blogs, you start with telephone these, down to yeah. kind of essentially oh they're opposed to each other. Right, exactly. And so like you and and it's still and I mean games in the university where they're supposed to be Who's supposed to be doing work on games? That's still a, a, a you know, it's it's, it's not like question. it's still an open question. I mean, certainly English departments have a large presence. Of, like a lot of people in English departments do work on games. People in media studies, media studies uh, of course. sociology has yeah. some about yeah. kind of like making social movements. Yeah, and how how different forms of sociality work through games. So there, you know, game studies. The game studies department is not a, the, a staple at, at places right now, <laughs> and and as long as there isn't one like that, I think there will always be a little bit of this like temptation to say, oh, it's narratology, and by what we really mean is like those people in English yeah. versus us, us computer scientists, us game designers, us ludologists, yeah. like the people who are like, oh, you know, I designed games and then I went to academia, I worked on novels and then I went into English, yeah. that hidden behind that is sort of an, a, an institutional conflict, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very it real yeah. institutional separations. And very true. that's something that Aaron Signal Franklin uh, brings up too, is that yeah. we always tend to think of games as systems first and foremost. And sure. so like, okay, well, what are the limitations of the system? Whereas we should yeah. really be talking about what is the overall like effect of the game? You know, sure. what is your experience with it? Yeah. And that kind of bridges those two disciplines. So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in 10 years when every school has a game studies department, we are, we are well-funded professors mm-hmm. writing about video games, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll solve all these problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. So go check out the, the video, um, Aaron Signal's video. It's fantastic. I will say the title again right now. It's called The Debate That Never Took Place. Is that what it's called? Indeed. That is indeed what it's called. Excellent. I couldn't. I didn't find it on the page, but I just pulled that out of nowhere. It's beautiful. Um, we want to wrap this up with a couple of little things here at the end. Uh, the last thing we want to do before we move into just thanks and, and sort of uh, where you can find us is a little segment called What's in Your System? So this is Terrell's excellent uh, idea. And the idea of this little short, very short segment <laughs> is just for us each each of us to go around and talk about some sort of object that you've been thinking about, that you, whether you're playing it, you're reading it, a conversation you had with someone, or something you listen to, maybe another podcast you listen to, um, and just to sort of call it out, say why you find it interesting, and sort of, it's like a little bit of a recommendation to whoever might be listening, um, uh, something that we found thought-provoking. So, uh, Terrell, why don't, you, why don't you start, get us started off? Sure. Uh, What's in your system? What is in my system? What is in my system literally at home right now? Actually, probably not, because it's probably Bioshock. It's in my PS4. <laughs> um, but what has been in my system, and I can't wait to get it back in there, <laughs> is um, 
Titanfall 2. Great. Yes, Great I've game. heard so um, many good things. Yes, very good. Uh, they added a campaign this time around. Yeah. Oh, good. That's right? actually the reason I didn't buy Titanfall, the original. Yeah. Wow. Was, yeah, I, I wanted a campaign. Right. Yeah. So there's the campaign, and it's it's actually... I think it's a little... They're, they're struggling because, you know, I think they're so used to building the grunts with the AI yeah. in the game when those are basically meant to be cannon fodder. Like, run out, yep. kill a bunch of grunts, get your, get your kill score high to get the Titan as soon as possible, which is a great mechanic. So they're, they're kind of trying to think. I would I would recommend, depending on your familiarity with shooters, if you played a few shooters, go ahead and bump it up to, to the harder difficulty. You don't have to master all of the jumping and everything like that, but yeah. Yeah, that's just a piece of advice I would give. Yeah. But what really keys in my system about this game is the Titan. And yeah. the fact that the Titan that you play with in the game has an AI, and it sort of mm. interacts with you. That's so cool. it's kind of the Cortana, the okay. Jarvis, the Tony Stark. And just thinking about, you know, that's that's such an interesting thing, you know, about how you interact with this sort of character, especially given that, well, spoilers, even though it's the top 20 minutes of the game, <laughs> um, the Titan originally belongs to the person who trained you. Mm. Okay. And in the process of combat within the first level, he dies, but then transfers uh, pilot ship to you. And so you've got these weird kind of probably not consequential dialogue choices, but just the sort of interacting and the fact that he kind of gives you sort of feedback. He says, wow, that was a great battle. You did great here. And yeah. you want to think about this, 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 this. I'm throwing these things on your HUD. And, you know, you'll have to sometimes, because he's so big, like fight your way on your foot and then sort of open a place so that he can get back into you. But, you know, just mm -hmm. the... The fact of sinking in and interacting with the Titan is just getting me to think about the AI interface. Of it's a really sure. interesting gameplay mechanic. Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of its biggest draw when Titanfall yeah. came out, right? Yeah, the the the, the Titans, the whole the, the whole Titans thing. Titans. Titans, <laughs> Titans. Beautifully said. Excellent podcasting, Kyle. What's in your system? Uh, I've made the terrible life choice of playing World of Warcraft. Oh, no. Oh, oh okay, guys, I just want to announce this is the last episode of Scholars <laughs> of Play. We're not going to have time to get together no. again. Um, no, I'm I, kidding. Yeah, so I'm kidding. I... Uh, Grad students. <laughs> so I had a... Uh, I played World of Warcraft for a long time uh, growing up. And when it for, kind of first came out, I played since uh, vanilla, since classic, and yeah. I, I wow, about okay. six years into it. Yeah, and I stopped playing around uh, when co college came around because I... Didn't have the time, and yeah, and so I've been playing a lot of other games since then. But I've been—I haven't been addicted to World of Warcraft. Okay, yet. I, that's been pretty. I played like a few hours a week. Sure. Like I've been very good about maintaining the nice. distance. And I've been thinking a lot about just why it always played as like the perfect game to me. You yeah. know, because you hear there's a lot of criticisms of it. Like obviously there's like the people addicted to it, um, like seriously psychologically, physically addicted to it. Sure. Um, yeah. I might have been one of those people. Yeah, and so. I played a lot of games uh, that, for me, were very similar. Games like Dragon Age, um, other Bioware products that you know were kind of fulfilling the same kind of checkpoints. You know, very RPG driven, yeah. heavily skill based. Um, you didn't have to put in all this time to be a master in it. Um, yeah, and, and so I've I've gone back to World of Warcraft. Uh, probably a bad choice in the long oh, run. But I'm gonna Blizzard knows how to make that. They they know how to produce. <laughs> Those, they make pretty quality games. They you know? do. They know the loop. They know the yeah. psychological loop, and they and they they just hit it. You know. Yeah, and so it's been it's been kind of fun for me to go back into this game where like I had so much attachment to you know literally thousands of hours of gameplay yeah. in this thing and kind of experiencing it now as like a fully realized adult and kind of saying yeah. like wow this is pretty dumb or like this is actually like a really interesting plot device. And sure. I will still assert that World of Warcraft has an actually pretty amazing story. Mm. And, a, and a kind of like longer narrative that's like, frankly, I, I don't think I can think of any other game as complex in yeah. its narrative. Um, 
in that like the kind of levels like you have like yeah. this kind of planetary level of like there are like demons the size of planets yeah, and they yeah. have to be fighting each other and then yeah. even down to like yeah, I'm like a, a, a you know a, a cow person, yeah. and I have to go kill those evil <laughs> centaur people because they killed my family. Is a cow person a person who like owns cows and takes care no, of them? No, like a literal or cow is person. I am a cow. A tauren. Okay, <laughs> okay, that's is where, a okay. person you know that, like a bipedal cow. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, so so the, so I'm kind of fascinated by that plot and how it's kind of managed in this very alive virtual atmosphere of millions of people playing together. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so. Hearthstone has been out of my system so for we're a while. Blizzard's at two thirds. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, BlizzCon just happened. I feel like we're, I almost we're, we're we're supporting it too much, but Hearthstone's going to be back into my system soon. But what I what I I'm going to recommend actually a text and be boring. Um, it's a I, I read I read this uh, essay in a book by Alexander Galloway. Um, it's the book is called Gaming Essays in Al- Algorithmic Culture, and. I would just I would really recommend the the first essay in this uh, book. I didn't write down the title of the essay, um, but the really thing that like hit me and has made me think a lot about think in different ways about games is that he defines gaming as action. That um, games are things that we do, and he he like at a very fundamental like ontological level, like the existence of a game is predicated on the action of a computer and the action of a human user coming together and both doing something to make the game run. So that like even at its very existence, games sort of are actions on the part of a machine and a human. But also that um, if we think about the interactivity of games as actions, there's something about switching that terminology to the word action that makes that made me click and go, Oh man, I mean, actions are things we evaluate. They have moral consequence. They have social significance. They they are acts within a sort of political uh, existence at all times. And uh, you know where the line between the games, the game context, and the world context. For me, like reading his essay, even though he does sort of end up making a schema for how to uh, uh, place different um, actions, it makes it a little bit blurrier for me. Like it puts it on, it puts real world actions on the same schema as game actions, and that blurring of the line for me has been, I I don't know exactly what it's produced yet, but it's it's made me really rethink how how I think about games. So I, I would just I would shout that out. It's Alexander Galloway, I think he's at NYU, um, big game big big uh, games writer. So check that out if you are hungry. For more games criticism, so we learned that Derek is the nerd. That's out of the me. Three of us. Uh, <laughs> hello, <laughs> it's the games criticism cast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, let's just real quick. Um, how can people find you guys on the internet, Terrell? How can people find you on the internet if they want to? They talk can at find you? me at Black Socrates on Twitter. <laughs> Great. I was the lucky one to be able to pick that up. So yeah, Black Socrates. I, I remember when I saw that I was like damn he got that and Kyle and I were just talking about that I was like wow I can't believe someone else didn't have it uh, Kyle where can people find yeah, you yeah I'm at internet? White Socrates on <laughs> <laughs> that is a joke um, I am at the much more prosaic uh, at E underscore Kyle underscore Romero 
I'm not sure who the other E. Kyle Romero is who yeah. took the without underscore one, oh, man. but I have to meet him and kill him yeah. so I can have it. Maybe it's Ikile? E- 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 it's like a first name? Ikile, yeah. E- so my, e- my full name is Eulogio Kyle Romero, but yeah. I go by E. Kyle. So yeah. E underscore Kyle underscore Romero. On Twitter. On awesome. Twitter. Yeah. Um, so you can get at me on Twitter. It's at digital underscore Derek. I almost forgot it. At digital underscore Derek. Um, we also have a Twitter account for the podcast itself. That is at scholars at play with no spaces. And if you had any comments or criticisms or thoughts or praise. Or if you want to be part of the podcast. Or if you're interested in taking part. Like uh, we're looking for people sort of in the physical location of the Nashville area. That's sort of where we're all based. And we want to keep it a physical operation right now just because trying to do it over the internet is so can be is beyond what I know how to do right now. That doesn't mean we want to expand to that, but right now we're looking for sort of people in in uh, physical space to interact with us. Um, if you're interested, shoot us an email, and the email address is scholars at playpodcast at gmail.com. The email address, again, Kyle, what is the email address? Of what? Of our podcast? Scholars at playpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, I think I got it. Terrell, just real one more time. Could you just tell me what the email address is? Scholars at play podcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. I think we got it. <laughs> okay. So um, now they've heard it three times. Yeah. <laughs> so send us send us your thoughts. Tell us what you thought. A um, couple of thanks to give. I want to thank the Curb Center for Art, Enterprise, and Public Policy at Vanderbilt University for providing all kinds of support. They are providing the equipment that we're using. Um, they're, we're in a space that they've given us to use. Um, and the time to use it, uh, especially Jay Clayton, who's been uh, a, a lot of help in developing the ideas behind this podcast and sort of making that possible. I uh, also want to thank Haystack, which is the Humanities, Arts, Science, and Technology Associated Collaboratory, which is a very long acronym, which I have practiced many times. Um, <laughs> uh, thank and Haystack for helping make this project possible. This is my Haystack project that I'm working on with, with uh, these two guys here. Um, I also want to thank Adam Murky, who uh, helped set up the audio technical equipment here. He did a great job and made Logic work much more easily and quickly than I could have done on my own. And um, I also just want to give a quick shout out to the Critical Gaming Project at University of Washington, especially Ed Chang. Um, go to the Critical Gaming Project at University of Washington's website and just check out the really cool keywords seminars or keyword sessions, I think they're called. Um, I kind of looked at those and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we did that, but like for a podcast with like way less texts. It's the same idea. He's got like, they have like a key, there's a bunch of people associated with it, but they have like a keyword for the session and then a bunch of texts and a bunch of games. And apparently this was like a physical seminar that they took part in. And I sort of emailed back and forth with Ed and said, hey, would it be cool if I like took your form, Matt? And he was like, yeah, that's cool. And he was really cool about that. So Wanted to give him a shout out for that. Um, I mean, it's a great website. With a lot of awesome, yeah, a lot of awesome content. Yeah, so check that out as well. Um, it was also a Haystack project, I believe. Mm. Um, so, or at least was maintained by Haystack scholars, at mm. the very least. So, we're planning on doing uh, one episode per month. That'll be really starting next year. We're grad students and we're very busy, so we feel like that was a, a commitment that we could uh, we could work on. So, um, you know, hopefully this podcast is up sometime mid November. Keep an eye out for early January for the next one. And uh, I want to thank my co-hosts once again, Kyle Romero. Thank you. Yeah, and Terrell Taylor. Thanks. (laughs) That's going to do it for us. Bye, guys. See ya. See ya.